So if you have a Bible, you can begin to work your way through the book of Acts. It's the story of, uh, of how, God, how Jesus continued to work. In Acts chapter 1, Luke writes, this is how Jesus continued to work uh, through his church by sending his spirit on mission. So, uh, Abby, can you switch the slide off that? Thank you. We're, we're, we're all going to fire on cylinders today. Uh, so Acts chapter 15 is where we're going to be at today, uh, and we're going to continue to work through that and ask God, would you, would you show us what the purpose and the power of the church is and do that in us as you did that in them? So when I think about when I became a Christian in the mid-90s, one of the th images that comes to my mind is Charlie Bucket. Does anyone know Charlie Bucket? How about Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? Okay, Charlie Bucket is Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, specifically, the 1971 version. We, we watched the 2005 last night. That was weird. But 1971, Gene Wilder, uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, you know the story. It takes place in, well, it was filmed in Munich. And there's this chocolate magical factory. And there's going to be five tickets that if you get a golden ticket, you get to go in. And so the only way to go in, and you can take someone with you, is if you get the golden ticket. Well, you know the story. Eventually, Charlie and his grandfather, uh, they get to go in because they've got the golden ticket, right? And when it gets to the gate do gates of, uh, of the chocolate factory, you present your golden ticket, and the doors open, and, and you get to go in. And w once you're in there, though, he, uh, Willy Wonka has you sign this contract saying you'll, you'll, you'll not give anything away, you'll, not, uh, you, you'll obey all the rules, and then, and then the one that obeys the rules best will, will get kind of in, ends up inheriting the whole thing, right? And, and that's what I think about in the 90s, mid-90s, when I think about Christianity, or at least the circles I immediately got into. The gospel was this golden ticket. Like, hey, you, you want to get into the chocolate factory, right? Well, you've got to get your ticket. And so, so evangelism was about getting people their golden ticket. It was about saying, hey, if you have this ticket, when you get to the door, they got to let you in. And you're like, cool. But once you get in, the ticket doesn't really matter anymore. It's like, yeah, it was good. That's what I needed to get in here. But now, <coughs> what's the contract? What do I got to sign? And that's what I think about as, as, as the first churches I started to get into. It was like, gospel, good. We'll still sing about that. But then when we talk and we meet and we get in together in Bible study, it's like, what now must we do? What, what now must we, will make us more holy, make us more righteous, make us more uh, justified in God's sight? Now, we might not have used those words, but basically, that was the atmosphere uh, of the mid-90s in church. And so, uh, they, they did a lot of goofy things at that time. Um, for example, like, okay, how do you become a next-level Christian? And, and everyone's just kind of comparing each other and saying, and so if you were like me in the early 20s uh, going into that, man, 1997, this book came out by this 21-year-old who had never been married, didn't really know much about marriage, but he had some other older people pouring into him and said, he wrote this book, and the book, you, some of you know it because you read it, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And the premise of the book was, hey, we don't want to be like the world who just kind of dates around and, and has all sorts of brokenness there. And so, so here's what everyone should do. And it's not just presented as, as a good idea. It's presented as this is God's idea. Don't date. Don't kiss anyone. Court. 
That means basically you, you, you talk to them, eventually you get married, and then you move your relationship on from there. And, and this is what was seen. If you want to be a superhero, like an extra credit Christian, that's how you did it. And, and I, was talking to, uh, I was talking to Ben this week, and he's just saying, hey, Ben, I know you were in those circles too. Tell me about that. And, and he's just like, it did a lot of damage is what it did. It caused this kind of uh, uh, legalistic righteousness that was pursued by the church. And, and in the end, that does a lot of damage. And I had already built this into my message today, but the author of that book this week just said he's separating from his wife. And that's tragic and that's sad. And yet even still, Joshua Harris, who wrote the book, this scripture is going to tell us today his right standing before God is not based on his ability to stay married. His right standing before God is based on the blood of Jesus alone. And by grace, that's, that's what he's woken up to, and I, I hope that he embraces that. But what we have this, this, this way of doing Christian, and it's really not the mid-90s. It's actually every generation, every uh, church, every uh, throughout time, has, we have these tendency to take the best news in the world, the most amazing news in the world, and somehow twist it or add to it so it becomes something that's, instead of freedom and joy, bondage and fear and striving and self-righteousness, so that even if you do well, in the end you get self-righteousness and you don't get peace and joy in Christ. And so we just have this, this tendency, we sing the, the song, right, Come Thou Fount, uh, we have this tendency, our hearts are prone to wander, right, and, and when we sing that, I think we can all agree, if you've been a, a follower of Christ more than a week, you can agree, yeah, my heart's prone to wander, but I wonder how you think it's prone to wander. Like, yes, there are, there, there are, you know, outward sins out there that might tempt us in different ways and our hearts are prone to wander in that. But I think the, the bigger problem is they're prone to wander to things that look really, really good. They're prone to wander to say, look at me, I'm better than you because I did this. I, I, I went to, you know, the mission field or uh, I, I did this or that. And so there's just this something in us that wants to... Uh, to Take the grace of God and add to it something. It's Jesus plus something. And when we add Jesus plus something, we forget, we, get, we forget, first of all, that Jesus outed all of us on the cross. You know that, right? Like you have no self-righteousness that could stand before God. Like on the cross, we see that Jesus came and he died in our place in a horrific, brutal death. He took on the wrath of God for you and for me. And he said, your self-effort is worthless. So why would we think that we could get saved by Jesus' grace alone and then think somehow now we have something to add in and of ourselves? We just sing about it. Our only hope is his righteousness. The gospel of grace that saves us is the gospel of grace that sustains us and, and there's just a tendency in us to say, I've got the golden ticket, now what must I do? Jesus plus what will make me really kind of a superhero Christian, whatever that means. Jesus plus, and, and, and so we say no, the gospel is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that's it. Grace, faith, Christ, that's it. Grace, grace, grace. And when we talk about grace, 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 sometimes people get a little, little bit nervous. So in your heart, someone may be in this room, you're saying, yes, but. Grace, but. No, it's grace alone. No, yes, but. You really need to vote like this if you're gonna be a Christian. 
Yes, but you really need to, uh, you know, if you, you, you need to, you need to school your kids like this. Now, so just a side note on that. I, we, we've sent our kids, we've homeschooled our kids. We've sent them to public schools. We've sent them to Christian schools. We sent one of our kids to a boarding school. Some of you are judging me right now. We sent our kids to the most atheistic, secular public school in the world in another language we could not understand. So some of you are judging my Christianity and my salvation now, right? In every one of those choices, other Christians have questioned our salvation or at least our love for our kids. If you were a good Christian, you would not do it like this. If you're a good Christian, you'd send your kids into the school because that way you could be a missionary. If you're a good Christian, you wouldn't send your kids into the school because that's where the devil is and you would never do that. And like, it's just ridiculous. Jesus plus something culture Christianity, it, it makes the gospel not the gospel. And, and there's a tendency in us to always look at, at, at the grace of God and say, yes, but, yes, but, I should do this, I should do that. And, and it's been the case throughout history. And, and in fact, we're gonna see that, that the greatest danger to the church in the first century and in today is not necessarily external, not even hostile governments and hostile worldviews that would seek to destroy us. The greatest danger to the church is internal. It's in this heart right here. It's in your heart. It's in our culture as a church. The danger is to think that somehow, if we just do enough, God will be more pleased with us. To turn inward and look at our own righteousness. That will kill Christianity faster than any regime seeking to take us out. And so when we look at this today, we're going to see that, that, that great danger. There, now, the church in the book of Acts has faced a lot of dangers, a lot of the external ones, some internal, but none like this just yet. Let me just catch us up by way of uh, recap in chapters 13 and 14. And before I even do that, let me just pray for our time as we turn our eyes and put them on the Word of God this morning. Father, as we come before you now in the name of your Son and in the power of your Holy Spirit, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that we can even have these prayers. And so, Holy Spirit, would you uh, just realign our hearts to the gospel? Would you re-gospel us? Would you uh, set that firm foundation in our hearts and, and where we need to repent and where we need to turn back to the gospel? Lord, would you do that in our church and in our lives? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in Acts chapter 13, Justin preached last week the first few verses, and he showed that a God-glorifying church is one that equips, raises up, and sends its people to, to multiply, and he did a great job from that. And at the end of that passage last week, they sent out their very best. They sent Paul and Barnabas, and in the rest of chapters 13 and 14, we see Paul and Barnabas doing what? what we're called to do as a church. They're going from city to city and they go in and they preach the gospel and many reject it and some receive it. And, and this pattern gets repeated throughout chapters 13 and 14. And in, at the end of uh, chapter 13, there's this kind of this summary in one of the cities, verse 38, 48 rather, says, and when the Gentiles heard this, <coughs> excuse me, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So, so the gospel is going to pagans at this point. 
So far in the book of Acts, we've seen Cornelius come in. We've seen the Ethiopian eunuch. These guys were Gentiles themselves, but they were, they were close. They were trying to be as Jewish as possible. But now the gospel is going to a place where they have no concept of who God is, no concept of what's right and wrong, and, and yet the gospel is preached, the spirit falls, people believe by grace through faith they are believing in Jesus. And, and God is rescuing people. Now, there's others that reject it, and they move on from city to city, and this continues to happen. And eventually, Paul and Barnabas come all the way full circle, and they come back to the church at Antioch. And then we see the greatest threat to the church, both then and forever, that, or at least for the last 2,000 years. Verse 1 of chapter 15. It said, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers... Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So these are people from Jerusalem, uh, people that claimed Christ. They said, yes, Jesus, plus, in this case, the law, specifically circumcision. So, so you can imagine to a, a, a pagan, a former idol worshiper who said, oh, I, I love Jesus, I want, I want some more of that. Someone coming in and say, yes, Jesus, but are you circumcised? They're like, what, why? <laughs> why are you obsessed with that? They're like, it's because this is what God said. Well, they continue on. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So they, Paul gets into a theological heated debate and argument. You want to have the gloves come off for the apostle Paul, add something to the gospel. He will get heated and this is what happened. And so the gospel, gospel clarity, the gospel of grace alone is worth fighting for. And so they, they decide we're, we're going to settle this once and for all. We're going to go to Jerusalem and we're going to talk to the mothership and see what it is. Is this true? Is it grace alone plus the law? Because that's not grace alone. And so they, they begin to head there. Verse 3. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Verse 5, but some believers, these are, these are people claiming Christ, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. So you could be a Pharisee and a Christian. Paul was a Pharisee and a Christian who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now again, let's not be too harsh on them. They have given their whole lives to the study of the law. They've memorized it. Their intention is, hey, if we follow the law, this is how we will honor God. For thousands of years, this has been the way that God has, has worked with his covenant people, the Jewish people. And so they have a good intention. Joshua Harris had a good intention. Most of the time, legalistic righteousness comes from a good heart, and yet it goes into a bad place because it's not trusting the gospel that saves is also the gospel that sanctifies. So they say, we, you, you got to follow the law. 
Now, again, this, he, this, gets, this gets Paul pretty fired up if you've read any of his other letters to the churches. It wasn't until this week. There was this mystery in my mind for the last 25 years of me being a Christian. I did not understand why Paul, the, 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 the Pharisee of Pharisees, would be called to Gentile pagans who have no idea about Judaism, and, and Peter would go to the Jews. Like, it just, I'm like, God, maybe you should have switched that because they, one seems better than the other to reach those people. And then today, this week, I saw the infinite wisdom of God. Why? Because here's the argument that they were making. Listen, you've got to follow the law. You've got to do everything right to get into heaven. Yes, Jesus, plus something. And only Paul could come along behind that. And wherever Paul went, these guys would come and and try to add the law to to self-righteousness to get there. And only Paul could say, hey, no one's gone further than me. No one's, no one's done the law better than I've done the law. Let me just tell you right now, you don't need to listen to them. I've been down that road. It doesn't go anywhere. He uses very strong language. In the, in the book of Philippians, I'll have it on the screen here, he writes to the Philippian church warning them about these Judaizers. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about those going around circumcising people. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and, the glory, and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So this is what Paul is willing to fight for. So he goes down and they begin a a theological fight. We've heard the argument from the Judaizers, you must have Jesus plus the law. Verse six says, the apostles and elders gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, so this went on for some time, Peter stood up and Peter's gonna give three arguments hitting on the side of the gospel. Here's what he says. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, (laughs) excuse me, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of God and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So the first argument Peter is going to bring forward is is from Acts chapter 10, which is actually about 14 years previous to this, when when God calls Peter to bring the gospel to Cornelius and his household, this pagan who believes and receives and the Spirit of God falls. And you know what? He wasn't circumcised. He had bacon in the cupboard. Like, in every way, this guy had lobster juice running down his shirt. Like, he, in every way that the law said, this is how you are clean, 
He, he did not meet that. And, and Peter's argument, look, look, God has done this. God is doing this. I don't know why you think that in addition to that, now we need to add this. That's, that God already showed us that he's at work doing this. So that's the first argument. Then the second one, verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? See what he's getting at there? He's like, you really going to ask these Gentiles to follow the 613 commands of the Old Testament when we haven't followed any of them? Really? Is that going to be the standard? I mean, we can't even keep the Big Ten, right? I mean, think about it. You're a liar. It's not a question. It's a statement of fact. You lie. You bear false witness. You present a, a face that is not true about yourself. Jesus, I've, I've never murdered anyone, but I've been angry with people. I've, I've liked to think, man, I'd like the ministry of pain right now. I'd like to punch someone in the throat, maybe. Uh, Jesus says, hey, if you feel that, uh, you have committed murder in your heart. So you're a murderer. I've never cheated on my wife, but you know what? I, I, I've had impure thoughts. I've, I, I've had to guard my heart. And Jesus said, hey, if you have those, you're an adulterer at heart. So if we just stop for a moment, we're so far, what, what is that? We're, we're liars, we're murderers, we're adulterers. We can keep going on every single one and see that we've broken the law. Because here's the point, and here's the point that Peter is getting at. The law was never meant to lead you to salvation. The law was meant to show you your need for salvation. And, and as you strive and you try and you fail, you're like, man, God, I can't do it. I need your help. And Peter's like, are we really going to say, hey, yes, grace, but also do all the things we couldn't do? Of course not. So that's his second argument. And then his third one, verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Do you see what he's saying? He's almost turning it around. He's like, if anything, us Jewish brothers, we need to become more like the pagan Gentiles who are coming to faith. We need to stop trusting in our heritage and our righteousness, self-righteousness, and we need to come to faith by grace just as they have. And Peter drops the mic. Literally, I think, I think he would have because verse 12 says, and the, all the assembly fell silent. Like, there's a little gospel bomb for you. What are you going to say to that? So after some awkward silence, Paul and Barnabas get up. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And then there's silence again. And after they had finished speaking, James replied. James, the half-brother of Jesus, now has risen to, a, to leadership in the church. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was not a believer in Jesus until the resurrection of Jesus. Because it'd be pretty hard to convince you that one of your family members was God unless you saw them die, buried, and raised again. And, and James has seen this. But at this point, I wonder if the Judaizers are like, okay, here's our guy. He wrote the book of James. Faith without works is dead. He's, he's finally, we're going to have someone, a heavy hitter on our side. And James is like, nope. All the hitters are on the gospel side. Listen to what James says. Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's, that's Peter, that's his Hebrew name. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. 
just as it is written. And so he's going to quote Amos chapter 9, but he's basically saying, hey, for a long, long time, the prophets have pointed to this day where God is going to, going to rescue and redeem Gentiles from all over the planet. Verse 16, quoting Amos, he says, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of the David that has fallen. I re- will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. <clears throat> that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Verse 19, such an important verse. Highlight this verse, underline this verse. Therefore, this is my judgment, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. I I love how The NIV puts it on the screen, Abby. (laughs) We should not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. Now, if the Lord would ever lead us to build our own building or whatever, I hope that on the cornerstone, we would put this on the cornerstone. We should not make it difficult for those that are turning to God. Because we do. And so if we have this on the cornerstone, just we should not make it difficult for those that are turning to God. We should examine everything we do and we say. We should be careful about the words and phrases we use. If you're not yet a follower of Christ and you're here today, we're so glad you're here. And if we're doing anything or saying anything that is confusing or adding obstacles to your path, we apologize for that. Because we do not want to make it difficult for those that are turning to God. So we want to be careful about the words we use and the phrases we use and the term. Like, let's not speak a different language called Christianese. Let's, let's talk in real, real words. We should not make it difficult for those that are turning to God by acting like everything is okay in our lives and what's wrong with you? With fake smiles and a fake facade saying, we could never relate to you because we're perfect. We should not make it difficult for those that are turning to God. We should be honest. That's why we say often here, it's okay to not be okay. God will meet you where you're at. We should not make it difficult in, in, in any way. We should just examine all that we say and do and sing and say, is this leading to God? Is this helping people on their journey to God? <coughs> so, so that's his first statement. He's basically saying the Judaizers are wrong, should not make it difficult to those that are leading to God. And then he says this, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogue. So at first glance, that can be confusing. It's grace only, but here's a list of things you should do. But, but here's, what, here's why James writes this list. He's first of all saying, hey, Let's just remind them now that they have life and freedom in Christ, that is not consistent with a life given over to idolatry. So tell them, hey, don't, you know, repentance is part of the Christian life. And so don't give yourself to idolatry. But secondly, notice what he said. He talks about this blood and animals being strangled. What he's getting at is how are Jewish people who are deeply uh, affected by by the law and deeply affected in their culture, how are they supposed to be, um, well, how are they supposed to table or fellowship or or be in the same room together? He's saying you have freedom in Christ, but use your freedom in love. 
So, so if, if Jewish brothers come to your town, don't, don't just start, you know, having medium rare steaks and uh, bacon on the side because that, that would be an offense to their sensibilities. Because you love them, choose to lay that freedom down. Okay, so one of the easy ways to put this in our culture is uh, around the issue of alcohol. Some people have a conscience issue that they can't do it. Other people say, I have the freedom to do that. And you do. Have a good cab, have a good beer, enjoy that. But we should understand that that freedom should never be abused at, at the sake of our Christian brothers and sisters. So one example we, we, we talked about recently is a, a good friend of ours, her and her husband struggle with, with uh, drugs, drug and alcohol. But they go to a church and they go to a gospel community and the wine and the beer starts flowing all night long and they're like, well, well, we'll have three or four. But they don't stop there. They go back to their home. They have three or four more. They go on a binge and they're just wrecked for the week. Now, I don't know that their gospel community knows this, but I would hope if they did, that they would say, hey, you know what? Seven up at our gospel community because that's, because love trumps that, our freedom. So that's what Paul, that's what James is getting to the Gentiles. He's like, hey, if, if Jewish people are going to be in the room with you, just be sensible to, to understand what, what is deeply offensive to them. Lay that down, not for your own righteousness, but because of love. This is how we're going to move forward and not have two churches. And so they write up a letter and they basically recap everything that they just decided here and they said, hey, we know some have troubled you, but we're gonna, we, we want you to know it's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And they send the letter with Paul and some of the other delegates from Jerusalem, and we see the result. Verse 30, so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Where fear and bondage were reigning, when the gospel was reintroduced, there was freedom and joy once again. And this is why we, we want to be a gospel-centered church. Some of you said, Mark, you only have one message. You just use different illustrations and ver verses. I'm like, that's right. I only have one message. And it's the gospel because it's the message you need. It's the message we get off base so often and so quickly. You need the gospel. You need to see and savor the righteousness of Jesus alone on your behalf and to soak in that. And as you bring that back into your life, joy and freedom and encouragement come back into your life. Now, how do we, how do we actually apply this in, in our church and in, in our own lives here? I, I think this passage warns us of three gravitational pulls that are present in every church. The first one is this pull from a, a passion for outsiders to placating insiders. So every church goes through this transition, or I hope not, but a, a passion for reaching outsiders to moving to a place of placating insiders. <coughs> so every church plan, I, I, church plan I ever talked to and ever known is because they have a heart and a desire to reach their city. And two and a half years ago, that was our heart and our desire that we would reach a city that the vast majority do not know Jesus and the Savior is, is grace and mercy that comes through him. And so we planted Redemption Parker. But even in two and a half years, we feel the pressure. You know why? Because those people outsider that we have a passion for, they don't send me emails. They're not like, hey, why aren't you doing this? At my last church, we did that. 
And if we add these things, that would be great. They don't do that. So there's just this kind of pressure like, oh yeah, well, well let's just kind of get more and more insider focused. We gotta resist that. We gotta push off that. So that's the first one. A passion for outsiders gets replaced with a placating insider. The second one is just a move from grace to law, right? In every generation. Like by this first century, Tertullian, who's a great a church father, has a, a lot of great things to say. But he would say to Christians, hey, no going to the theater because of its pagan origin, origins. No dancing because it could arouse sensuality. And no cosmetics or perfume because if God wanted you to smell like a flower, he'd put a crop on your head. That's what he said. There's just like, oh, it probably came from a good heart, but it just became law and bondage. And that happened in the 1500, early 1500s. The church was going around saying, hey, yes, Jesus, but you can also pay your way into heaven. Just pay these indulgences. We'll build St. Peter's Basilica down in Rome, and you're good to go. And Luther said, no, grace alone, faith alone. But then you read Luther's later writings, you're like, what happened to grace alone, faith alone? I mean, just in a generation, this can happen. This move from grace to law. And then finally, there's, a, there's just this pull in every church and every organization to move from trusting in the power of the gospel by the Spirit for inward transformation to external conformity. Holiness by the Spirit is difficult. Let's just follow these three rules and we'll see who's in and who's out. But we've got to resist it because the gospel is worth fighting for. Gospel clarity is worth fighting for. And so as, as we come to this table, once again, we, we're reminded that, that, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The only stumbling block we want to put in front of people is the cross of Jesus. Oh, it is a stumbling block. It calls you out. You have sinned before a holy God and you deserve his righteous wrath. But Jesus came and took that in your place on the cross. So if we are adding anything to that message by our attitudes, our posture, our, our words, then let's repent of that for our joy and our freedom, but also for the joy and the freedom of the world. So I'm going to pray for us now and just, uh, just lead us in a time of just, just examining, examining, do we have anything that's Jesus plus something? And just to repent from that and come to this table once again and enjoy the gospel together. Let's pray. Lord, I know that there is a long list in my own heart and mind where I put myself as better than the other because of my thoughts or my words or my, just my selfish nature to think that I'm better. And so, Lord, I, re I confess and I repent of that. Lord, I pray that you would move in our spirits right now if there's anything in us that has added to the glorious news of your gospel. Lord, help us to just lay that down and repent from that. Lord, prepare our hearts now, even as we come to this table, to be reminded of your broken body and shed blood, and that is our righteousness. God, thank you for the gospel. Would you uh, just re-gospel us every week? Would you make this a, a gospel-centered church? Would you, would you give us a continued passion for outsiders? a continued love for your grace 
and continued trust in the power of the gospel to transform us from within. We ask in Jesus' name.